Hello, and welcome again to Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Native American artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in our community doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Native American community from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Diani Whitehawk. She's earned her MFA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and her BFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts. She's a recipient of the 2019 United States Artist Fellowship in Visual Art and the 2018 Nancy Graves Grant for Visual Artists, among many other grants and fellowships. Most notably, she's recently received the Star Tribune's 2019 Artist of the Year, in which she shares this recognition with five other Native American artists in Minnesota. It's a powerful lineup that includes Julie Buffalohead, Andrea Carlson, Heidi Erdrich, Louise Erdrich, and Delina White, and hopefully soon some of these will be guests on our show. I think what makes Diani so interesting and worth listening to is her disciplined approach to intentional planning and mapping of her path. It's a powerful lesson that young artists need to listen to. So let's jump into this interview with Ms. Whitehawk. Thank you for joining us. Sure thing. Happy to be here. Thank you. All right, so we're going to just jump into it. Um, First question is, can you tell us a little bit about your background and where you're from? My name is Diani Whitehawk. I am a visual artist. Uh, I live in the Twin Cities area. I live in Shakopee and I have a studio in Northeast Minneapolis. I am Sichangu Lakota through my Ina, through my mom, um, member of the Rosebud Sioux tribe. And then through my dad, my dad's German and Welsh, so European American. His folks settled in Portage, Wisconsin. Um, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and then moved away for college. I got my associate's degree at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas, and then went on to get my bachelor's degree in fine arts from the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and then went back to Madison for grad school and have been in the Twin Cities area uh, since 2011. And who are your biggest influences? Oh, my biggest influences. There's plenty of them. It'd, it'd be a long list if we really wanted to get into it. Um, but I guess I can give you more categories in regards to uh, genres of art um, and then maybe a few specifics within those. I My practice combines influences from... Lakota art forms, Lakota aesthetics, and our artistic histories. And so generations of Lakota uh, women predominantly because I draw the greatest amount of resources uh, and inspiration from the histories of um, porcupine quill work and beadwork, uh, parfleche painting, and uh, adornment, you know, uh, dressmaking and things of the sort. So uh, Lakota people and our artistic history and traditions is a huge part of my uh, influence and uh, inspiration. And I'm a, a painter. My studio practice is predominantly a painting practice, and it's an abstract painting practice, um, pulling from the history of those Lakota artistic traditions, but also pulling from the history of um, abstraction, painted abstraction on canvas, 
Uh, and the eras of color field and stripe painting tend to be the eras I'm most drawn to. Uh, and so some of my favorite painters within um, abstraction have been Agnes Martin, um, Mark Rothko, uh, Motherwell, Robert Motherwell. Um, I love uh, Jean Moreau and Marsden Hartley, uh, Sean Scully, just a whole long list of abstract painters. Um, so yeah, there's pre predominantly those are the two areas I focus most on is abstract painting and Lakota abstract art forms. And how have you developed your career, uh, both through college and post-college? How have I developed my career? Um, slowly but surely and step by step. <laughs> so um, when I was in college, I really focused on being in college. So I wasn't, I purposefully and strategically didn't make efforts to um, be showing or making big gains within the field while I was in school. I really wanted to focus on what I was doing at that time on my development, on, on building my own voice and who I was. And so that when I did hit the ground, I could hit the ground running um, with something that I felt very grounded in and very secure in um, and proud of. And so I, when I graduated with my BFA, um, from II and I was in Santa Fe, I did start working with a gallery at that time. Um, but it was fairly short-lived in that the gallery was fairly short-lived, but also once I moved away uh, to go to grad school in Madison, I really let them know that I was going to be focusing on developing my work at that time. And um, so that was a, that was a, um, a good introduction to the gallery world and, and, um, all that that is, but I chose not to do any uh, markets like Indian Market or Plains Indian Market or anything like that really until towards the end of my, um, towards the end of my trajectory through my MFA program. And then I really kind of saved it all up. And then um, once I graduated, uh, I think my, you know, my first big gain was the uh, Santa Fe Indian Art Market of 2011 was the year that I got my MFA degree. And I brought um, some of the best work that I had done in my MFA exhibition and I got best of um, my division. So best of painting, drawing, graphics and photography that year at Indian Market. And then um, picked up another gallery in Santa Fe through that experience. They saw, you know, that work and approached me and we worked together for a number of years. Um, and then when I moved to uh, Minneapolis, um, I started working with a gallery from in Minneapolis in 2012. So the year after I graduated and I've been working with that gallery, Bulkley Gallery since then. Um, and it's been incremental, you know, you, you, work your way through um, group shows and smaller solo exhibitions within your galleries. 
um, participation in art markets such as Santa Fe Indian Art Market, Plains Art Market, um, and other opportunities like that until you start getting larger invitations. Um, so last year I had my first solo museum exhibition. So I had a solo museum exhibition at the Lilly Museum at the University of Nevada, Reno Art Museum. And now I've got the solo museum at uh, the Plains Museum uh, that was supposed to open on the 20th, had COVID-19 not hit the world. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> but it'll be <laughs> opening you know, as soon as we can. And um, I have another solo exhibition coming up this coming year. And I've also been really, um, I've really focused on applying for any and all opportunities that fit my particular practice. So um, I've really concentrated on learning how to write a really good application and submit a really good application for grants and fellowships and and. Uh, residencies and opportunities that help build my resume and build my career. Um, I have worked on uh, the other side of that as well. So spending time being a review panelist. So, you know, being on the jury for grants and fellowships and art markets so that I have kind of a well-rounded understanding of not only what it takes from the artist perspective, but what it also takes from the administrative perspective. Um, I've spent four years curating, and so I've kind of uh, built my career from a um, multi-pronged approach. Uh, and you know, each opportunity lends itself to increased networking and increased opportunities from, from there. Oh, you actually uh, flowed right into the next question was, how do you seek opportunities? Um, we, we can touch on that in a second. Uh, I wanted to go back to something you had mentioned, um, uh, that when you were an undergrad, uh, that you had uh, deliberately um, worked on your, on your craft while in school. Was that, um, did that stem from uh, a conversation, or how did you get to that realization uh, when you were in school? Oh. I wish I could remember exactly. Uh, I guess I, you know, to some extent, some of it is probably from watching, you know, watching people try to, you know, become a hotshot in the art field or to really make it while they're still learning, while they're still developing. And, you know, I guess just common sense and instinctually, I know that I, I felt like for me that that wasn't the best approach. I really wanted to, when, when you're in school and you're learning how to, you, for me, in my opinion, I really think that's what the focus is, is you're learning how to, you're learning how to make uh, a strong painting, learning how to put together the, the best composition, you're learning how to, uh, you know, apply the tools and the techniques and and combine those, uh, the execution of work with really strong content and concept. Um, and you're looking at other people, you're looking at other artists for inspiration. And, and so in those early years, so many of us were, were, you can't help but be mimicking what you're looking at 
until you really get to a place where you have uh, honed in on what your unique voice is, what your unique contributions are, what what you are going to bring that will add to a conversation in a way that it's not already been done. <clears throat> and I know that that takes time to develop and I didn't want to have like to enter the the professional realm with a particular body of work and have that kind of wobbly until I had really established what it was that I wanted to bring forward. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to bring forward a fully formed voice, um, you know, as best as it could be at that stage in my life um, and present that instead of kind of having everybody watch me grow and progress. And, you know, maybe it might be slower because I, you know, my earlier works weren't nearly as strong or weren't nearly as developed as they were after I had graduated. Um, and I'm sure that there are parts of that that came through conversation with faculty and mentors as well. I can't pinpoint one exactly. I don't have a, a clear memory of, you know, that's how I came to that realization. But I, you know, I mean, I was talking, of course, to, you know, my painting professors and um, to, I did a internship at a gallery as well. And I just, um, you know, observation and, and conversation and, and learning about what it takes to make it in the field. And it looks like this, uh, this discipline um, that you applied early on, and it also followed you into your uh, master's program, holding off going to the different markets. Yeah. Because uh, I imagine, you know, in grad school, the temptation's there to, to enter these markets and to help um, uh, promote yourself, fund yourself, because, uh, you know, um, I was in grad school myself. Those, those are slim times. Yeah, they are. So that's the other thing. I mean, I guess early on, so I wanted to go to IAIA early in my life, um, but I lived in Wisconsin, and IAIA is in New Mexico. And, you know, I came from a single parent family and my mom was um, on disability and, you know, we just didn't have money. Uh, and I worked full time to support myself. It took me six years before I even went to college. And so I was, you know, delivering pizzas and working at skate shops and um, going to a lot of concerts, playing, <laughs> being a kid. Um, but when it came time, when I, you know, really wanted to go to school. I wanted to go to IAI. I knew that was the art school. Um, but coming up with the funds to get myself to New Mexico, and then at the time, the tuition, I think it was like 2000 something. And right now that sounds like such a minimal amount, but to a kid that's supporting herself, getting to New Mexico on my own and the money that it would take to do that plus pay a tuition felt like an insurmountable amount of money. Um, so I, I went to Haskell first because I knew that Haskell, you know, had, um, it was like 300 something dollars for tuition, uh, for tribal students, you know, students who are enrolled in their tribes and Kansas is a 10 hour drive. Um, so I sold snowboarding equipment, uh, to get myself to Kansas and to <laughs> enroll at Haskell and, it wasn't until I was there that I even knew that grants and fellowships and all that kind of funding for students even existed. 
Um, and so once I was introduced to the possibility of that, I really worked hard on um, developing really great strategies for applying for all sources of funding that I could get my hands on. And I worked. I mean, I also got a job right away when I got there. But, um, you know, obviously they're part-time jobs because I'm going to school. But I really, like, I put together a little binder. I worked on putting together essays. I worked on putting together, like, you know, a file of facts of all of the pieces that, that grants and fellowships ask for, you know, your transcripts, your your bio, your essays, your photographs, your whatever you know, that long list is. And I started compiling that so that anytime I saw a new resource that came out that could would have potentially apply to my scenario, I already had a set of tools ready to go that I could adapt to that particular application. And so only through that, I learned, oh, I actually could go to IAIA because I could write for funding to help me get there and to help pay for it. Um, and that's what I did. And so because of that, you know, the best chance that you have in getting those opportunities is to have good grades. So I also made darn sure I got good grades um, so that I could, you know, be at the top of a list for consideration for an opportunity like that and you know asked for help on editing and looking at essays asked for feedback from folks until i got really good at it and then um so i got myself through undergrad and through grad school on funding resources um so grad school i um i got a fellowship to go to grad school as well but you know i don't think i would have gotten that had i not really honed in on and focused on um, applying myself to be able to, you know, have really high grades to, to be a really committed student and to learn how to write the best applications I could do. Um, it's so those slim times are real, but I think it's entirely possible for students to get through those slim times if they really apply themselves uh, and, and go out for all the resources that are there that apply to their particular scenario and hone the craft of applying for those resources because that it's like a whole nother job in and of itself oh absolutely um you know it sounds like a it's a level of proficiency and, and, and drive there um do you feel uh that and then please correct me if i'm wrong you, your mother is sandy yeah uh, yep my dog? yep now she okay. she's a veteran and she is Yes, and uh, I'm, I've been pretty inspired by her. Um, I've seen the People's Protectors, and oh, and uh, she's worked with uh, where I'm from, Assistant Wapiton Oyate, mm. and uh, I know the the veterans groups have associated with her in the past. Um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it, is, it feels like there's a, a level of discipline there that uh, you may have picked up on, learned from. Yeah, I mean, I think my mom is by far my greatest mentor and guidance in life. And she has, I think resiliency is something that I've definitely learned from my mom. And her service is, is definitely a part of that. Um, but she has faced a tremendous amount of adversity in her life. Uh, and she's one of the most continuously positive people I know. 
despite the long list of things that she's had to deal with, that she's had to endure. She is not a bitter person. She is not uh, an angry person. She is not uh, a resentful person. So one of the things that I've learned from her is, you know, in order for her to get through all of the adversity that she's faced, she's worked really hard on her emotional, spiritual well-being. And she's passed those teachings onto me. So when things feel tough and when things feel hard or insurmountable, you know, she's really given me the tools that I need to take care of myself in the best way possible through healthy means as well. So my mom is sober and has been sober since she was, um, since I was five. So um, I've also learned those things from her. So that's a, a level of discipline as well that she's learned that I'm sure the discipline that you have in the service probably serviced her in her ability to even um, rein in the kind of discipline that you have to have to, to get sober and stay sober. So there's a lot of different things I think that have, have um, contributed to, you know, what I've, what she has developed for herself over the years and then what I've gained through being her daughter. Mm. Um, going back to opportunities, um, I've in previous interviews I, I've had with uh, uh, young artists and, and artists who are further along in their career, and they the, the opportunities, of course, change as you move through time. And so, have you? The general question is, how do you seek opportunities, and has has the way you, you've seeked opportunities changed from maybe early on right outside of school and to where you are right now? Yeah, definitely. Um, and it does change over time. Uh, and I think, I guess one of the first things that comes to mind when you say that is that it does change over time and it is an incremental process. And you really do have to understand and own and be okay with the fact that it is a progression and that you can't jump to the end of the game board before the before you've gone through the sections that take you there so you know there's there's very rare cases where people jump all the way to the end right at the beginning um and those are those are exceptions and oftentimes i think we watch those people's flames burn out early too um, so it's, you really have to own where you are at a particular place in time and incrementally work your way to where you want to be, you know, one step at a time towards your dreams and, and, um, knowing that if you continue walking towards it, then you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing and you're exactly where you're supposed to be. If you keep looking towards that goal um then that that then exactly what you're supposed to be doing at the time so that it changes over time you know in your early years you know right out of school um you should be applying to you know or submitting to group exhibitions you should be applying for emerging artist uh development you know grants you should be going to workshops um that you know help you learn how to write a really great application or that help you learn how to appropriately price your artwork. 
you should be networking as much as possible, building those relationships that help you um, sustain uh, your career for the long term. You need to be showing up at events. You need to be looking at other people's artwork. You need to be taking the opportunities that are appropriate for where you're at at the time and not being salty or upset or angry if you're not getting something that you think looks amazing but you haven't quite earned it yet. Um, and then as you go, those that it's like a snowball effect, you know, as you continue to push and grow your practice because you can't stagnate. That's the other thing is like as, as your opportunities grow, your practice needs to be growing. You need to be consistently pushing what's my next step of growth in my work. Like, yes, people have responded to these works, but I can't just keep making these batch, this batch of works in a variety of ways for the rest of my life and expect my opportunities to continue to grow. If you want your opportunities to continue to grow, you have to keep growing too. Um, and so, you know, you're, when in the early days, you know, I was, I was participating in as many, you know, group exhibitions that I felt um, good about that, that were, you know, themes or places, or I was surrounded by artists that I felt like I fit among. Um, I didn't position myself in galleries or shows that I, that my values did not align with. So you also have to be cognizant of where you want your work to be, who you want to be surrounded by, and what you want your work to represent or say within a particular context. Um, you need to be doing you know, the art markets and all of the things that will help you build your resume. You know, Applying for residencies, applying for everything and anything that fits where you're at. And then as you start to build, the lines on your resume um, and, and you are, people start to notice your contributions, those opportunities will grow and the, the size of those opportunities will grow incrementally with that. So, um, and then you'll get to, you, you, you get to a place where at some point you've outgrown particular opportunities. Um, and you have to learn to then say no to certain things so that you can make room for the things that are uh, next on the ladder, if that makes sense. Um, so and so you have to be really thoughtful about that. And it's not, it's not about saying, oh, that thing is beneath me now. It's not about saying, oh, I'm better than, better than, than this crew of people that are doing this particular thing. It's about acknowledging um, that it is all um, a part of growth and all of it is worthy and all of it is valuable and all of it is, is good, but you have to decide where and how you want, you know, how do you, where do you want your work to operate and how do you want it to operate? And, and pe different people have different goals. And so depending on what your goal is, you know, you have to determine that for yourself and then be walking towards that. And there may be, it may come a time where, you may have really enjoyed participating in, in one aspect of the art world, but you might have to start saying no to that thing in order to make room for the next thing. Um, and so it does, it does change over time and you have to be willing to adapt and to, you know, think about not only what 
is serving you, but what is serving your values and your goals and um, the people attached to those values and goals as well. And the, the final question, uh, what do you want to say to the 18 year old version of yourself? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> the 18 year old version of myself. Oh dear. Um, and I, I think the, the reason that we've gone with this age, as opposed to the, the 15 year old or the 22 year old is I think when someone's at the age of 18, you know, they're for the for most folks, you know, they're or most kids, they're, they're ready to, it, it's their first time free. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the protection of home is gone. Uh, and you know, and I think you, you alluded to this, you know, where you see, you see kids in, in undergrad, the first year in school who are really hot and who are really, really ready to go and they burn out fast. Um, mm -hmm or they, they get uh, derailed and chase something else and then you don't see them again, and, which is a shame. Uh, but anyways, so that's sort of the, the logic behind this question is um, it's, it's the age where you're, 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 you're kind of free to do what you want yeah. to do. I guess that question is hard for me to answer because there are things that I'd like to say to my 18-year-old self. I was in a very, very different place at 18 than I am now. Um, I mentioned earlier that I didn't go to school for six years after graduation. Um, you know, I, my high school, I nearly flunked out of high school. Um, I went to two different high schools and I nearly flunked out of the first one. Like the last quarter I was there at a 0.89 GPA because um, I had an A in art and was failing everything else. Okay. And then I went to an alternative high school where I learned um, that education could be beautiful when it's done in the right way. Uh, and I, I graduated that high school with um, a scholarship for most improved student. And since then, I have been a super nerd and have you know worked towards getting 4.0s in everything that I've done. But I still, like I was healing from things in, in my youth and I was using at the time and partying and um, that was my focus at the time. And my 18-year-old self, I was focused on um, delivering pizzas, working at a skate shop, snowboarding, going to a lot of concerts, going to a lot of rave parties, and I was having a lot of fun as it, as, you know, in my youth. Um, but I was working full-time and, and, you know, even though I was, I was playing and, you know, soaking up what it meant to be a young person. Um, I did always prioritize, you know, having a full-time job and supporting myself. Um, but I was, I was, I guess, lost in um, a lot of, you know, the emotion that was wrapped up in my childhood probably. So there's a part of me, you know, I have a slight regret in the fact that I, you know, over the years, um, I've looked at people who are at the same point of trajectory in my life and I'm considerably older than they are oftentimes because I started six years later than most folks do. 
Um, at the same time, I also really, really believe and recognize that we don't all have the same timeline. We can't all have the same timeline. And my scenario is not going to be the same as your scenario. And, you know, person A scenario will never be the same as person B scenario sitting right next to them. Even within siblings in the same household, they're not going to necessarily need the same things at the same time. And so I don't want to pretend that I know what could have been, should have been, would have been if I would have started earlier. It might have been that if I started earlier, I might not have been ready. I do know that by the time I got to school, I was already sober. I was, well, the second semester I was in college is when I started my sobriety. And, but I was more mature and I was ready to be in school. I was very ready and very committed, which is why I was able to nerd out and get high grades, you know, because I was anxious and willing to be there and a willing participant. And then found my sobriety at the time and have just been, you know, extremely committed to my education and my career since then. So I might not, I might have needed those buffer years. I'm not sure, but there's a part of me that wants to say, Hey, if you start a little earlier, <laughs> you'll, you'll have a leg up and maybe you'll have some more time. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's a strange, you know, maybe if coulda, woulda, shoulda kind of question. Um, I would like to tell my 18 year old self, maybe we don't need six years. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I'm really happy with where I'm at. So I don't want to, you know, and, and my life is good and I've learned a lot and I learned a lot through those times. Um, and I, I have, you know, a life now where I can reflect on what that looks like and what this looks like. And I know that this, is the good life. Um, and so I don't want to, I wouldn't want to be void of those lessons either, you know? Oh, yeah. I hope wow, that makes great. sense. But, <laughs> and, and I, it's not giving anybody any answers of what they could or should do, but, <laughs> like, no, um, but it, it gives a perspective. Um, it, it gives a perspective, I think, that uh, I think some people need to hear because um, it's, uh, yeah, not, not everybody is in the same place. Not everyone's circumstances are the same. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's, there are people that, you know, we, we don't all have the same track out of the gate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely. So, yeah, I guess what I would, would want to say to other 18 year olds, not necessarily my 18 year old self, but other 18 year olds is don't beat yourself up. If you think that, you have not done it so far. You're just at the start. You're just at the very beginning and you have a lot of time. Um, and if you think that you've not, that you've failed or that you've misstepped um, or, or that you think you've doomed yourself, it's not even close. It is a completely possible to have a rocky start and come out with a um, flourishing, abundant adulthood but you got to walk towards it and you got to build towards it and you have to actively work and participate and set those goals and keep walking towards them. Deanne, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Sure thing. Um, Thanks where, for having uh, me. Absolutely. Where, where can people find you um, 
online or check out your work? Um, online, my website is just my name, so www.dyaniwhitehawk.com, dyaniwhitehawk.com. Um, <clears throat> you can also, you know, Google my name. You can check out, you know, you could press the videos link. There's a number of um artist talks that are on the web or you know different ways to research you know things that i've participated in in the past um i also have a earring line um that is under chetanska.com and chetanska is just white hawk and lakota so that's uh c-e-t-a-n-s-k-a.com uh, yeah it's a good Great. place to start <laughs> Thank you so much. Sure thing. Thanks, Joe. I thank appreciate you. it. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Deanne Whitehawk again for her time and sharing her story with us. More importantly, I want to thank you for joining us and spending time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. Please join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Canna, that's C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists, on our page on Facebook, or at the plainsart.org website. There you can see our programming, past videos, and these podcasts. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and soon other podcast platforms. And if you have a suggestion for someone uh, that you would like us to interview, please reach out to me on that Facebook page, and we'll, we'll see what we can do. So we'll see you next time, and thank you for joining.